Hey, what's going on, everybody? Thank you for joining this edition of Alumless. I'm Ryan Catherwood, your host. Alumless is a Chris Marshall Advancement Consulting production. On the show, we discuss alumni and donor engagement and other trends in university advancement. And today we are broadcasting live. Uh, so if you got a question for Chris or myself or our special guest today, Jennifer Cunningham from Lehigh University, uh, please go ahead and ask it in the comments of the event on LinkedIn. And of course, um, definitely chime in and say hello. We'd love hearing from our listening audience. And although we can't interact with you on LinkedIn, we can see your comments here in the broadcast platform that we're using. Uh, so the show is uh, on LinkedIn Live is about 30 minutes long, and we have another 30-minute bonus segment that we make available through the podcast version of Alumless, which you can subscribe to using Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Amazon Music. Okay, let's bring my friend and partner and boss, uh, <laughs> Jedi of alumni engagement, uh, Chris Marshall, who is actually joining us from vacation, he has managed to put aside some time uh, this Friday while his family is busy frolicking along the beach uh, to hang out and do an episode of Alumless. Hey, Chris. Hey, Ryan. How are you? Good to see you. We have to make this quick because I gave my wife shopping free clearance. So if I'm on this long, I'm going to be in big trouble oh, at the end of it. <laughs> free clearance. That's that sounds uh, that sounds like it might be trouble uh, yeah. at the end of the day, but that's great. How's your vacation going? It's been great. It's been really uh, relaxing. It's good to unplug. I'm learning this from leaders I've worked with in the past is to go unplug, check out, be away. And here I am on a webinar. But this was scheduled for a long time, and we're actually heading home. We're packed up, ready to go. And as soon as I'm done with this, we're going to hop in the car and drive home. So it was a good nice. week to unwind. That's for sure. <laughs> And what do you do for fun? What are you reading, Chris, when you're on the beach, relaxed, sunscreen on, you know, laid out? What 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 are you paging through? It's um, standing up and lifeguarding my two children the entire okay. time they're in the water. So there's no reading for that. That's uh, fair enough. None, none this trip. But when they get a little older, I probably will. But right now, it's just chasing the two little ones around the beach. Right. No, that makes sense to me. I've got some little ones. We've, our kids are actually about the same age. Um, but... Uh, so summer's always a chance in higher ed to refresh thinking and, uh, you know, to not think about alumni engagement when you're on vacation. But at the same time, it's uh, really a great opportunity, perhaps the best opportunity for planning and evaluation back uh, when you're thinking about work, right, for the next uh, yeah. year. How did you use your summers when you were leading the programs at Lehigh and Cornell? It, it was the, uh, I called it the collaboration partnership time for me. I would get out to meet with every dean, with every other unit leader, and you know talk about how our worlds overlap and what we can be doing better. Uh, it progressed over the years. And as I got to Cornell, we would use summer months actually to sit down with our major gift and even principal gift officers to talk about how we would overlap our work. What can we do to help them drive their business and to help cultivate or steward their top prospects who are in line for uh, solicitation in that coming year. So it was a very integrated mindset, especially at Cornell, and that we used the summers to help you know, line up the work so that we were all on the same page and pulling in the same direction. It was a it was it was a refreshing take on the on the on an alumni program that now we had gift officers again all the way up to principal gift officers thinking about how they can leverage the alumni program to help their work, which I, I love that we could contribute that directly to it. Yeah. I remember sort of hosting a lot of professional retreats, you know, with, with my teams that I've yeah. led. And, and I think lots of uh, alumni leaders, advancement VPs, you know, summer's a great professional development opportunity. I yeah. had the opportunity to, to speak at the William and Mary uh, professional development day a few weeks ago, which was awesome. And I think yeah, lots of schools are, are doing that sort of a thing as well. But, you know, one of the things I remember, Chris, from my work at Longwood was this time of year was really when, you know, we were uh, looking at all the data from last year, right? And making sure it was all in the CRM, all the engagement touch points, all the activity that we had, that we had, you know, managed to help stimulate uh, and make sure it was all in the system in the CRM so that we could report on it, yeah. um, you know. And now we've got the case alumni engagement metrics, right? Where we're, that's really one of the ways we're framing the, the, the way we're putting metrics uh, results into the CRM. 
Uh, what are your thoughts on the importance of the metrics categories that Case created? And um, do you sort of, does that jive with your thinking in terms of this part of the summer being all about catching yeah. up on metrics? Yeah, for sure. When I was at Lehigh, it was 01 to 08. And while the Case metrics didn't exist, Pequod, private college university alumni director, shout out to that group, had developed what was, I, I would call the precursor to the Case metrics. And we, we, we were in a much lighter version making sure data was getting ready to be put into the Pequod version of what is now the case AEM. At Cornell, the best thing about it, and we could transition with this perfectly, is that I didn't even think about it because I had a crack number two who did, and her name was Jennifer Cunningham. She was with me at Cornell, and she's now our guest at Lehigh. In the world that we are in, in higher ed, things you know can stay very close in the family, and Jennifer became the number two when I got into that role there, and uh, did a phenomenal job of worrying and thinking about how this all came together. And she can tell you better about what happened at Cornell because she did all the work. I just made sure I had someone <laughs> smart doing it. Um, and then Jennifer ended up leaving Cornell and going to Lehigh, and now she's there. So let's bring in our guest, Ryan, because that's the answer is going to be from her. <laughs> well, that's perfect segue. Let's do it. We have one of the Jennifer Cunningham on Alumnus today. Jennifer is the Assistant Vice President for Alumni Relations at Lehigh University. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks. Good to be here. Now, we've all met before, of course, uh, but you actually worked for Chris Marshall for a while. I, I had to make sure we take this opportunity to ask you, what was he like as a boss? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll log out for a second, Jennifer, you can be honest. <laughs> Well, I think he sort of alluded to this before. He, I don't think he ever referred to himself as my boss, but he would say I was his boss. <laughs> um, that sounds about right. Yeah, because well, um, he does practice that sort of servant leadership model, uh, but also because I had so much data. And we really, I think our shop moved towards using data to guide us versus gut feelings, um, you know, which are important, but we really started relying on the data. So the data was the boss of both of us um, at, at Cornell. So, and now he's an alum, of, of course, of Lehigh. So in a way, he's my boss again. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to, I was going to talk to you about that actually, uh, but I thought we would save it for the bonus segment. Uh, Chris, sure. of course, is a, a graduate of Lehigh University. Uh, you are the uh, alumni leader at Lehigh University. Is Chris a, a problematic alum at all? Is he a little overbearing in his uh, wanting to to be, you know, helpful or what? No, not at all. He, um, I think, he understands the institution really well, and so it's helpful. Sometimes we get together for lunch, and um, more than understanding Lehigh, though, he understands the industry and understands that Lehigh is not unique in some of our challenges. So to be honest, more often we talk about the industry challenges that most schools are facing versus anything particular at Lehigh. So um, it's been great to have him in my hometown here. Yeah, well, I'm sure that's true. I'm just joking, Chris. I'm sure you're a great alum. Dan made a fun comment, just put too funny, because he knows the background here. And uh, thanks, Dan, for being here. And, and just Bill Bowl, who shouted out to you, Jennifer, he's your colleague at Lehigh. He's on the call as well. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jennifer, we talked a little bit in the opening about summertime being the end of the fiscal year in higher ed and working through reporting and cleaning up all the engagement metrics. As we sit here today, how are you thinking about engagement metrics at Lehigh and maybe even uh, framing it up as how you're thinking about it now versus when you first arrived? Yeah. So um, when I first arrived and um I just wanted to make sure that we were counting the right things. That's always the first step is assessing what you're counting. So counting isn't really metrics, right? It's just counting. Um, and so in the last six years since I've been here, with a lot of help from my colleagues and teams and others in the industry to guide and the case metrics, which I think we'll talk about, um, you know, I think we have that right now. Um, we have a pretty nice dashboard that we um, that we have that we report up to our trustees every month. Um, there's still some things that we need to count, like um, a lot of the digital kind of engagement, um, social media. We still can't count easily. We can't count email super easily, um, but we're working on that. So there's still things like that. But um, even just with the 
don't give help metrics. I'm thinking about the ways that they interact. So it's not enough to just say, I got 25 million event attendees this year. Woohoo! It's okay. What did those 25 million um, event attendees go on to do? So thinking about it as a pipeline, how do I and my team get someone who's an event attendee to come back again, to volunteer, to give, to contribute in other ways to Lehigh. So it's not just the raw data, it's what we do with that raw data and how we convert people into more than just attendees or more than just uh, donors. Sure. Yeah, I, I'll sure. build on Jen real quick. We, I've always said from the beginning that the case, even the precursor, the Pequod model, the case model is the crawl in the evolutionary stage. We have to be able to do that in order to walk, run, and ultimately fly, which we'll get to in our conversation here. But it's the, it's the minimum step that I think everyone should be able to do, yet most institutions, I think we're maybe getting to most, but most still are on that cusp of being able to do it fully. Right. Yeah. And now that we have Case's definition of alumni engagement, Chris, as you said, it's sort of the Pequod metrics were the precursor, but it feels like the Case metrics are somewhat ubiquitous now, right? They're everybody is sort of been adopting them and how do Jennifer, how do you feel about them and do they perfectly encapsulate what we do? Is there anything missing from the metrics? Anything that doesn't sit quite right? Um, no, I think uh, Jenny Cook Smith at um, Case has done an amazing job of hurting yeah, all the cats um, and they're doing great work and, and just a little plug for Case, you know, that's our group. So it's not like Case is doing this to us or imposing anything. We are Case. So I and Chris and probably Ryan, you've been involved. Lots of lots of alumni relation directors have been involved in developing these. Um, so the criticism I would have is not of Case. It's more of if you care about it, get involved and help us shape this. Because um, you know I have a way. I have a way of thinking about it. Chris has a way of thinking about it. Others that have been involved have different ways of thinking about it, and we need all the voices. Um, where I where I get frustrated is more, to be honest, with the technology companies, our database companies, that don't make it super easy for me to push a button and get the data out that I need. I think if they would sit down with Case and with people like us and say, how can we make our reporting tech, tech tools easier? Um, that, would be, that would be really helpful because a lot of alumni directors I speak to, it's not so hard to get event attendance or to know who your volunteers are, certainly not to know who your donors are, but to get that out of the systems still seems to be the biggest challenge for a lot of shops, especially the smaller shops that don't have people like me or, um, you know, our great advancement services, business intelligence kind of teams. So that's where I get frustrated more than with the metrics themselves. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, sometimes it's about not having the custom reporting available, mm -hmm. right? And why is that not available? Well, it's because nobody put pressure on it to be created, right? right. Uh, yeah. No one said the person who knows SQL, right? Who could actually write the reports, right? To do that. Yeah. Uh, because but, it's, well, why it's, do I even need someone to write SQL in my shop? Why doesn't all these different tech companies, why don't they have an out of the box thing that aligns with case where I can say, okay, give me the case report. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, Chris, as we work with partners on different types of projects, we often help address metrics, right? Where do you think the biggest weaknesses are for most alumni teams and the advancement orgs that they're a part of when it comes to capturing, reporting, and benchmarking on a full set of metrics across the four case categories? One of them is, is Jennifer's comment, uh, broadly speaking, you know, reporting out from any system is definitely on the list for me. The communications ones, I know one of the Lehigh struggles, most places still struggle with this. Um, I know we got other people commenting here, Ryan, so read that comment there. But that, like the communications one is the biggest challenge for a lot of folks because they don't have the tools. They can tell you how many people opened or clicked through on a story, but they couldn't tell you who it was without the right tool. And that's often expensive um, and a solution that many places just don't have. So that factor in there. Um, the, the other one that I scratch my head about all the time 
a smaller liberal arts college or an independent school, I think they should be able to get this done and, and be pretty accurate across institutions. But you talk about the large institutions, the Indiana universities, the UC system schools, where, where you have activity, alumni activity happening everywhere and every day. And the big one you hear, even at those smaller places, is you know the alums that come on campus to speak in the classroom. <laughs> that probably happens every day because a faculty member is calling that that um, alum saying, hey, can you come back? You know, they have a personal relationship and they're never even involving the Jennifer shop or anybody on the central team. Mm -hmm. So the larger you get, the more decentralized it, an institution is, the harder it is to do this. I, I think we just got to keep plugging away. And, you know, like we have eventually got to a point where we can be accurate on giving, we'll be accurate on engagement. But it, it goes beyond that. We're going to have to get into, you know, correlational work and then eventually predictive modeling. We got a long way to go down this path, but we have to start. And, and like Jennifer, I agree with 100%. This is us. It's not Case forcing this, right? We have to be willing to do this and, and pioneer it. I was at Case Summit. I saw two or three presentations on this. It was fantastic what work has been done since four years ago, but it's still early. We're, 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 we're on a steady walk, maybe closing in on a jog in some places, but we're still not running or flying yet, I'd say. So a long way to go. I think a lot of universities have correctly identified that the running and flying is going to be happening when you're able to integrate Salesforce, Marketing Cloud, or yeah. or tech or technology that's that advanced, right? Uh, when it comes to journey mapping and other methodologies to to track engagement, it's why if I was a an aspiring young consultant, I would learn as much as I could about Salesforce, Marketing Cloud, and. Uh, you know, I think that there's tons of schools adopting it right now and, and moving to the Salesforce CRM from yep. solutions like Blackbot or Elucian because of the opportunity that exists for engagement reporting and so forth. The, but, the other thing I'll say is that there, there are companies out there who have built tools that if you were to pay them to do it, they will take your data and come back to you and tell you, here's your score. But it's an annual thing. It, it's costly. I have several clients who are who've said to me flat out, we want to move away from the annual pay a lot of money to do what Jennifer's doing, being able to do it ourselves and do it monthly or even more frequently so we can monitor it as we go and not have to pay for it every time we need it. Mm -hmm. that, that's where we got to get to. That's that's I think that's the next step, frankly. We also need to get to training staff on how to yeah. use this stuff because traditionally you know, the best alumni engagement officers are people people and we're great at managing volunteers were not necessarily data heads. And yeah, so how to leverage that data, right? Yeah. Like how to find the stories in the data. Um, I don't need to know how to manipulate, you know, data tables and that kind of thing, but I need to be able to find the stories and then do something with those stories. Yeah, great point. I mean, alumni relations people have to be really good at a lot of things, don't you yeah. think? Like events. <laughs> data, strategy, social media, right? There's there's a yeah. lot. And it's one of the reasons I like this profession because it's really a robust set of skills and strategies, but um, you know, it doesn't necessarily work if you're just a people person, right? You gotta surround yourself mm -hmm. with a team. Right. Um, Jennifer, when you evaluate the full suite of alumni engagement programs at Lehigh and think about avenues for participation growth over the next few years, where do you see the program headed? And, and more broadly, where do you see the industry headed? Um, so I think it goes to what Chris was saying about, um, <clears throat> you know, having engagement all over the university. Um, I cannot be the only engagement officer. You know, my team can't be the only engagement officers. There's our different institutes, the colleges, they're all engaging alumni. Um, so getting out there to the deans and the directors and understanding what they're doing is, is one piece of it and how to capture that. The other big piece, and I'll use um, the Lehigh-Lafayette rivalry as an example. So we have the rivalry. Um, we just introduced an all-alumni tent, you know, a tailgate tent. So there's 800 people that come <clears throat> and we can count them, they register. But then there's this parking lot full of thousands of alums that are tailgating on their own people that don't do anything else with Lehigh. I went out there last, out there, like it's <laughs> the wilderness. <laughs> you got I, suited up. <laughs> I did, I got suited up I, uh, in a Santa suit, kind of. I had um, these free coasters that we made that were really neat. And I just started walking through the thousands of alums tailgating on their own and met so many people that I've never met before, great stories. And it hit me um harder than it has i would thought about this before but 
why am I trying to get these folks to come to me into my tailgate? Why do, like, you know, I was like, wow, how do I get all these people to come into and pay the $30 that we charge and be at my event, at my party? Why don't I go where they are? Um, and so we're really thinking about that from a larger perspective of all the alums that are getting together without us. That's great. That's fine. But how do I, in the words of one of our alums, wow them when I know they're getting together? How do I, can I just send them a bag of swag and say, hey, I heard you all are meeting for dinner. Have a great time. Here are some tchotchkes. You know, hope you'll be in touch. Um, you know, I think that's where we're going because so many alums are getting together on their own um, in ways that I don't need to be in the middle of that. Um, I would like to know about it so that I can try to bring them closer. But um, that's just one revelation I've had recently. It's a, a tricky question too, right? Of how much do you facilitate events versus empower people to have events? I think, you know, regional engagements is an interesting topic where you have these boards of volunteers who want to drive decision making. But do we really just need a few volunteers who could help, you know, put on an event once or twice a year? Do we really need a board? Right. And uh, how do we make some strategic decisions around uh, our programming that meets people where they are, as you say, both in person and digitally? Right. So I, I, think, um, I think it's a great, great sort of analysis. But as you as we were preparing for the show today, Jennifer, you made a great point that we still need to actively talk about uh, the lifelong return on investment of going to college and being an alum of somewhere, right? And mm -hmm. how can we as alumni directors remind people that you know they have that opportunity to take advantage of that continued value? <laughs> Uh, that, you know, is it's we, we take it for granted, maybe, right? That it's sort of fully understood, but it's not. Yeah, I think um, this is being made even more obvious, the more first generation um, students that come on campus and don't have the role models that, um, that I frankly did, um, with my parents being very involved volunteers and taking advantage of their alma maters, literally from the time they graduated until you know, they were very old. <laughs> so um, I think it's incumbent upon us as alumni directors to get the word out that the tuition is not just for those four years, because sure, in the media, we hear it's very expensive and is it worth it and all those arguments. And if you just look at the cost of the four years, sure, it does seem expensive. But if you amortize that over your lifetime and you think about when I'm 55 and I'm looking to be a consultant, how how do I get the word out about that? Well, there's an alumni network that I can tap into, even just getting on a LinkedIn group with alumni. Um, volunteering, you can pad, pad your resume. I hate that term, but it does teach leadership skills. Um, it gets you in front of alumni that you may never have met before that could be helpful. You can be helping other people. You can hone your management skills. There's just so many ways that people can tap into this network, no matter what school you're at, um, that I think we don't talk about enough. Um, and, you know, in my head, I have a New York Times op-ed written out <laughs> about <laughs> this and, and sort of the counterpoint to college is so expensive these days, it's not worth it. Um, well, I just noticed Dr. Maria Gallo chiming yeah. in to the, oh, the, the chat section, and she just wrote a book about it, um, yeah, The Alumni so Way. And I'm glad yeah. that she's here watching Alumless because I think even in other parts of the world, Jennifer, that there are, you know, in Europe, perhaps in Australia and other locations, like it's even worse in terms yeah. of, you know, really needing to just start using the word alumni regularly, right? And yeah. Uh, not just even taking for granted that people know what it means that, that, to be an alum yeah. of something. There's some I great. Just, um, go ahead, Jennifer. Sorry, I just ordered uh, Dr. Maria Gallo's book. Um, so Maria, I look forward to having more conversations with you about it. I think it's really important. Yeah, I wanted to point out two things. One, we have a great chat going on in the in the comments section. Please keep it going. We'll love it. We'll follow up with everybody on here, and we'll try to get a few questions in. And let's make sure we plug Maria's book fully. Um, the title again, Ryan? Uh, the Alumni Way. Alumni yeah. Way. 
All right, uh, Dr. Moore, you great, she's got a great website it. set up for it, and uh, it's uh, it's an awesome take that is helpful in reminding us as alumni professionals that it's not always obvious uh, yeah. why that someone should take advantage of being of their alumni ness, right? Mm -hmm. And, and not only a plug for her book, and thank her for being on, but let's make sure we invite her to be a guest soon, right? <laughs> we could use her voice. Yeah, Maria, we're coming to you for a request to be on alumnus soon. <laughs> well, Chris, as you think about, you know, the folks that you've worked with around higher ed who are really doing great work and, you know, sort of stand out in thinking about alumni-ness in a different way or just strategy in a different way, you know, who, who sort of comes to mind? And then I'm going to ask you to uh, plug our guest for next week, because as it happens, we're running up against the clock and it always feels like we just get the discussion going, but that's why we have the podcast segment. So um chris what do you think the um first of all ryan i'm on vacation my vacation brain isn't working so i don't even know who our guest is next in two weeks so you have to tell me that oh well, let's figure that out so go ahead and go ahead and just talk about something and while you're doing <laughs> no, that, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you my I'll thoughts on some uh, on some uh interesting places doing some really cool work i, I there are <laughs> big and small that i would point to that i would i think are, are doing some really interesting things um, I, I really like a lot what the folks at Davidson College have done. They're in a little bit of a state of transition right now with the leader changing, but they have built something there at Davidson where it's in the water. When they when they get 50% of their alumni giving and close to 70, 80% of their alumni engaged every year, it's, and they're using the case metrics like they're supposed to. So when you see that kind of data, you have to go, okay, why is it so high? What, what's going on there? What have they done? What's in the water there? So that's a place I'd point to. I've always liked what Howard Wolf's done at Stanford. He's one of the stars. Um, J.T. Forbes and his successor, Trisha Stumpf at Indiana, at a large public institution. Uh, Steve Grafton, who's retired, retiring from University of Michigan, uh, point to his shop as well. There's plenty out there. Julie Sina at UCLA. There's so many leaders, and we're all lined up to have them on this show at some point. So eventually you'll see them. But uh, there's a lot of good thinking out there in places. The best thing about case, the old copy and steal everything, is that people are willing to share their thoughts with you and, and give you their secrets. So, Ryan, divulge our, our, our speaker for next week, and I'll talk about how great they are. Nice. You'll have an easy time with this one. Our next guest is Nancy Merritt from oh. Pitt. <laughs> Another one in the family, right? Nancy started with us at Lehigh and moved on to Carnegie Mellon, and I uh, can't believe I forgot that one. But and she's at Pitt now. She's leading a really cool program at Pitt in a very integrated advancement shop under a phenomenal vice president there named Chris Davitt. I'm still working with their office and doing some really cool things there. Um, they're doing some really cool things and love the work that Nancy does. She's a very dear friend and a lot of fun and we'll have a good time. We'll talk with her in a couple of weeks. That sounds great. Well, hey, I want to thank everybody for chiming into the chat. Uh, Lola Maurer and Michael Brinton and we go up the list. We have Michael Scro joining us, uh, Kelly Holdcraft, at William and Mary, Josh Pohl at UConn. Thank you, everybody. Uh, Shannon Mural and uh, Bill, we, Temi, Aiken, Anna. Thank you for joining us. We're really grateful that you're joining the alumnus family. And what we're going to do is we're going to just hang up here and we're going to pick up the conversation in a Zoom room so we can publish it on the podcast version. Be sure to tune in for that. Uh, I'll publish it hopefully on Monday morning. I'll, I'll meet, let me plug your work here, Ryan, because Ryan does a great job facilitating this live part. But the real, we get cooking in the second half hour. So if you mm -hmm. haven't been listening the second half hour to any of our previous shows, go back and listen to them. That's where the good stuff happens. So Jennifer, looking forward to seeing you over there. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks again, everybody, for joining us. And we'll see you on the podcast and then back again in two weeks with Nancy Merritt. Bye-bye. All right. Well, recording is in progress once again. We are back with the bonus section on alumnus this week featuring the awesome Jennifer Cunningham at Lehigh University. If you're listening to this part of the conversation, you are uh, just coming off the live LinkedIn session and are now uh, picking up the conversation where we left off, talking case metrics, talking strategy, with Jennifer, who's the AVP of Alumni Relations at Lehigh University, which is Chris Marshall's alma mater, uh, which is 
very cool. And I teased out the idea of, you know, talking about Chris and uh, what he's like as an alma mater, but maybe we could actually talk a little bit about what's Lehigh like. I'm not sure everybody knows too much about Lehigh. Um, if you're not sort of from the mid Atlantic here in the U S but maybe Jennifer, you could sort of just start off painting a picture of Lehigh university. Right. So the fact that you just said Mid-Atlantic, that's something we're trying to change. <laughs> so um, looking at, um, you know, trumpeting uh, Lehigh's reputation across the country and across the world, um, which we are doing, um, taking more applicants from around the country and more of our alumni are moving out of the area. Uh, we have about 85,000 uh, alumni here at Lehigh, about 5,000 student undergraduate students and about 2000 to 2500 um, graduate students um, was primarily known for its engineering school I think that's still somewhat the brand out there but um, the cross disciplinary um, um, talents of our students are also getting more and more known um, I would say the brand of Lehigh that I hear from employers is that they hit the grand run, hit the ground running. That the place really prepares them well for, um, for work life. And so we're leaning into that. We just had a new, we just opened a new college of health, um, not a med school, but a college of health that is um, getting up and running and going really well. So it's beautiful, beautiful campus, um, constantly named one of the most beautiful in the in the country. So. I've, I've one of the crit critiques on Lehigh, if I remember correctly, is there's a lot of hills, or it's built on a big hill. Like you're always walking up a, a hill. I feel like, Chris, is that accurate, or is that way overblown? Um, if you're leaving swim practice on a morning around seven thirty a.m. on your way to breakfast or class, and you're walking up the stairs, what you just described is one hundred percent accurate because your legs are toast. But you get great calves at Lehigh. I can tell you that. Yeah, there are a lot of hills, but. Um, it's 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 the physical geographical feature of the place and it's not not really an issue once you're there frankly it's the, it's, it's part of the infrastructure part of the world you live in Jennifer how do you respond to that at now when you hear that yeah I think um that you know where my office is yeah it goes straight up South Mountain but there are also ways to go across yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We have found ways. You guys to are proving my point. Definitely, you're, you're on yeah. South Mountain, Mountain, and there's a few ways to cut across the face of the mountain. Ryan. Yeah, yeah. But it uh, is beautiful. It's in it's in the Lehigh Valley, Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Philadelphia, about an hour and a half to the to the west of New York City. So you're very close uh -huh. to two major cities, uh, transportation, infrastructure, everything. It's just it's. It, it really, it's a great place to raise a family and, frankly, a great place to go to college and spend four years as an undergrad. Yeah, I was surprised. The Lehigh Valley has almost a million people with Allentown, Bethlehem, and Easton. And, the third um, largest uh, geographical region in the state behind yeah. Philly and Pittsburgh. Yeah, and we participated in a survey with the um, Economic Development Commission that was trying to figure out why people want to live here. And I was surprised, but not surprised, about the outdoor opportunities. Because I'm a, a cyclist and a runner and yeah. take advantage of all of that. But it really is a draw for the area, the um, rail trails and that kind of thing. So, well, what what's something that surprised you about Lehigh, Jennifer? I know that you've been there for six or so years and leading the team. Something you may not have anticipated coming from Cornell. Um, a couple things. One is how passionate the alumni are about helping students. Um, and I don't know if this was a geographical thing at Cornell, like to get to Ithaca to be with students, you're not just ever passing by Ithaca, you are going there for something. So we didn't have as much access to the alums there. And it, it was more about helping alumni connect with each other. And at Lehigh, there are so many alums from the professional alliances to our affinity groups, to our Black and Latinx groups that really want to come to campus and help students. Um, and that was something that was uh, surprising. And I'm still getting used to that and trying to figure out how to facilitate that in the most efficient ways. Um, so I think that was a tough one. 
the, the other thing that was surprising, um, I, I alluded to it in the first part, was how much alumni self-organize. Um, there is this passion for Lehigh and for their colleagues and friends. And the fraternities are just one um, example of that. But the sports teams and the other affinities, the music groups. And again, I think that's true at every school that those three um, categories I just mentioned usually do have the strongest bonds, um, the largest bonds. Um, but they are doing a ton of stuff without the alumni office. Um, and again, that's great. It's really great. My my challenge is how do I how do I harness that love of Lehigh, even just a little bit, and try to help to bring some people back to help the current students, to help each other more, to help you know get them more plugged into the network than just with their own affinity groups. Chris, are those sort of observations that you would you know uh, you know? concur with, I suppose, and your observations about Lehigh, or are there any other sort of personality traits with the about the, the alumni population that at Lehigh that sort of stand out in your mind as one of them yourself? Yeah, there, there's an old, Jen's going to cringe when I say, but there's an old work hard, play hard thing that I hear from a lot of schools, frankly, and any good school that has, you know, students who attend who who like to have fun can do say the same thing about them. Here's what I took away. And I, I do see this at other places, but for me, it's a special thing about my experience there. And it's that it's a place where I learned how to learn and I learned how to lead. Yeah. And, and that happened in the four years I was there. And, and I don't know that I could say that about every school. A lot of them, I, I gotten to know 200 institutions really well. Many of them I could say similar things about, but in the case, I, I was fortunate to have chosen a place where that actually happened and, changed my life frankly so learn how to learn learn how to lead yeah well the work hard play hard thing is you know i grew up in the shadow of dartmouth college and the original animal house frat exactly. you know, was, was at dartmouth college as i was saying that right as the ivy league right it was like you know i've been in alpha delta and it, it was it was rough right so but those guys all you know were ivy league students so uh, but um well awesome so we've we've talked a little bit about Lehigh and, and you guys are actually connected and friends for a while. Um, Jennifer, you know, we've been chatting in the past about alumni boards, right? You and I have had conversations about all sorts of topics. Alumni boards was was one of them more recently. Yeah. And you've been thinking a lot about your alumni board and the experience that the board members at Lehigh have, uh, making sure it's mutually beneficial, mm -hmm. right? For for you and the volunteers, the university. Yeah. What can alumni leaders do to better prepare their incoming board members with insights and information on how to be the best board member possible? Yeah, um, I've been thinking a lot uh, since I got into this um, business, and I've been a volunteer on various boards, including my alma mater, Cornell, and others. Um, and I read something somewhere that said people often value time more than money because you can always make more money, but you can't make more time. And so I'm very conscious of how am I asking people to spend their time and I want to make it worth it for them, but I also have to make it worth it for the university that I'm spending Lehigh's resources well. Um, and so how do you build a board that's mutually beneficial so that people really want to be on it and Lehigh wants to support it? Um, that's the big question. But I think one of the things that I can do better, frankly, um, and I think a lot of people in my position, we talk about this all the time, is um, sort of laying out expectations more clearly of what we what we want our leaders to do. Um, I even have thought about, you know, if I, I, I don't think I would ever start my own company, but how do you train volunteers with things like, here's what succession planning means. Here's how to run a meeting. Here's how to use Doodle Poll to get a conference call together. <laughs> you know, some of these really basic skills that whether you're serving on the board of the United Way or an alumni association board um, are skills that volunteer leaders should have. Um, how do you work with a staff member who's maybe not doing, you know, not supporting you in the way that you expect? How, how do you talk to that person? Um, how do you get other volunteer leaders to follow you? What are even just how do you do a 
engaging PowerPoint to get your points across. So a lot of it is leadership training that you might get at a business, um, but really specific to working with um, a nonprofit board. And I think a lot of people that I want to see on my boards are not necessarily business people. So in fact, they may not even be getting this training. Um, so, you know, that's just something that I think about when I'm having a glass of wine sitting on my couch is, you know, how can we as an industry do some of that really basic training for all volunteers? Yeah. And, you know, the on onboarding of volunteers, right, sort of at a minimum, right, is is sort of institutionally specific in yeah. some areas. But as you just described, I mean, there's a lot of things that are, you know, sort of common yeah. aspects of being a board volunteer that all organizations uh, should be sort of thinking about and preparing for. Um, yeah, even things like the how a university works. You know, I think our alumni are out in the, quote, real world where things move a little bit faster. And so for them to understand, you know, what is a provost and what relationship does the alumni office have with a provost? Um, that, how does the budget work? Those kind of university one on one on one things that I think are fairly universal to most of our higher institutions. I think it would be really cool to have like a volunteer summit, you know, where we could send our volunteers and we'd get this kind of information. Yeah. I love this last time, Jennifer. I love this concept. And, um, you know, it's something that could be done in the industry under case. It could be done yeah. you know, uh, with a profit model in mind as well. We could build this as part of a consultancy, for example. So this sounds like a CMAC idea for the future when you're ready, Jennifer. You just <laughs> But not, not worried about making the money. There's a need for this in the yeah, industry. for sure. Revenue earned from it, great. But um, I, I 100% agree with the concept. The challenge that we face um, when we're running a consultancy or working in one, it's it's the constant grind of the day-to-day -day delivering the work while you're trying to sell the next work, let alone right. thinking about a whole new product evolution that you're describing, yeah. which is needed. So when you're ready, you let me know. We'll have that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things I was thinking about with respect to alumni boards is we always want them to promote programs, give us ideas for programs, participate in programs, right? We want the board to be sort of our champions, cheerleaders, and most engaged. How do we work with them on what to when we need to stop doing something, right? Uh, because that was one of the questions in the first section that we didn't get to because of time, yeah. but I wanted to make sure we touch on because it's a real problem, I think. And I think the alumni board plays a real role in um, the problem of inertia. I think you're right and you're wrong. <laughs> Good. That's um, why we're here. That's why we're yeah, here. I think some volunteer boards do if their fingers are in to this kind of thing. I see my board more like we're actually looking at a pretty big program we do right now. Um, and as I mentioned before, my boss is the data. You know, so first I'm I'm asking the staff to pull the data to really dig into, is this program producing the results that we hope? My gut instinct is that it is not. So then I would take that to my board, who are advisors, and I would say, hey, 30 people on the Alumni Association board, we're thinking about getting rid of this program. What does it mean to you? What do you think the fallout might be? Who are the people I need to talk to on the in the alumni world before we would pull the plug on this? Are there ways we could tweak it to make it less work for the staff and more efficient or and more impactful for the constituents it's serving? They I don't think our board would, you know, sign a, a change.org petition to say, you must, you know, keep this thing going. There probably are boards that are that involved? Um, our, mine is not. And I think that's by design over the last several years. We've um, They want to help me more as consultants and advisors than in the minutia of what are you doing every day? So that's an individual school thing, though. That's what I would call a healthy posture for an alumni board, right? Yeah. How far in they lean or how far back they lean, either direction. It's not a good scenario. Right. Right. And back to your previous point, the art of managing a volunteer or volunteers behaving appropriately 
staying in that right posture is critical. When they lean too far in, they drive you nuts. They lean too far back, it's not worth their time or, or our time, frankly. And you got to a, a really healthy point there. Sounds like a, like a good balance, yeah. but hard to do. And the art of volunteer management is that, you know, keeping them in that right range and right posture. Yeah. And that's why the idea that I was just talking about, you know, if you go to a school or I talk to another school's board um, and I say, here's how these things work in the industry of alumni relations. Here are some schools that have some healthy relationships with their board. And I'm talking directly to their board president. You know, that means a lot more than if I'm the staff trying to tell my own chair, (laughs) here's how I think things should work. It's just the nature of humans and hearing things from different people at different times. So, and if you come from a place where you've learned how to learn, and more importantly, learn how to lead, mm-hmm. and you get into that scenario where you're on that board, you're going to want to lead, right? What right. Is that? Again, it goes back to that posture. So. Yeah, for sure. Well, we didn't necessarily address the question of let's let's dig more into the stop doing things <laughs> challenge. Yeah. How do you know when you're supposed to, you should stop doing something? Maybe it's a cherished tradition of some sort and the dollars and cents just no longer make it so that the program for return on engagement uh-huh. makes sense yeah. any longer, but people really like it. You know, people really enjoy it. Whether And what do you do about it? So I would say there's two things. One is look at the data because that can help you, you know, is it just my bias? that this program is a a lot of work and, you know, um, like for example, this program I'm talking about that we've seen the um, attendance go down and that's the easiest metric. Um, There's also one of the things we're trying to um, promote with this program is people getting together and meeting each other. Well, they're doing that anyway, without us, they have a WhatsApp group, they've got Facebook groups. So they're, one of the big objectives of this program is is already being done by them without us. Um, so that's being solved. Um, there was another big component of this program, and I'm not naming the program because I haven't talked to about it <laughs> about it with anybody except a few members of my team. Um, but there was an element of it that was really helpful to development in the past, and we're no longer doing that. So two of the big objectives of these events are being met in other ways. Um, So that's one factor is what is the big, big objective and is it still being met? And then looking at that data, the other part of course is kind of political. Um, If I made a proposal and I said, we're not going to do this anymore because then I present all the data and the trustees or the president or, you know, my um, colleagues, say, oh, you know, this is this is a diehard tradition. We need to do it for whatever reason, politically, I, I had to keep doing it. Then I would find ways to tweak it so that the objectives were still met. Or as I was saying, I would figure out how to go to these constituents and help them, you know, if they have a WeChat or a, uh, what is it called, WhatsApp group, could I get into that group or I ask a staff member to get into that group and do things there? So, yeah, you know, there's, there's a process. Yeah. I think, I think you're right on the money in terms of how to be thinking about making different types of pivots. Right. Let let, let me sum it up in two words. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. The the more um, embedded it is into the culture and traditions of the place, the harder it is to stop it. Yeah. Um, the thing that has been going on for four years, or some people think it's a lifetime tradition, is easier. Um, um, everything that Jen said are all the right steps to take. And you never want to make, I learned this early on in my career, you never want to make an announcement at a group meeting where the people in the group don't know that it's coming. You need to have done all the work beforehand so that when it's talked about, you have advocates in the, yeah. in the room ready to and, you, the and it goes too to the volunteer management. I think Chris and I learned together about um, getting getting rid of something, and we <laughs> <laughs> people felt like we were doing it to them, not with them. And we did the math, and we were like, "This just doesn't make sense that we're doing this." 
well, there were other reasons why people wanted to do this thing that we, at least I did not anticipate. So I think it's a lot of it is talking to the people who are the front lines, who may have their worlds rocked um, in ways you didn't even think about. One of the other questions I wanted to ask in the first section was uh, a sort of a fill in the blank question. Mm. Uh, the best alumni teams are doing blank exceptionally well. And I share, I know there's, I know there's a lot of answers to that. Yeah. That you could, we could go, we could go on and on probably coming up with good responses to that. But what do you think are a few of them? Um, I, again, it kind of goes back to data. Um, they are using data to inform decisions um, right now, just in the last several months, they are retaining their employees <laughs> at a very basic level. Uh, I was just at this Pequod conference Chris was talking about, and you know everybody is suffering from um, not being able to pay people what we think that they should be paid or what they think they should be paid. Um, people are just reevaluating life and that kind of thing. So retaining staff is is one thing. Um, I think it's also um, figuring out the balance between digital and in-person. Obviously, we swung way far on the pendulum during COVID. And now what's happening is a lot of us have not stopped some of that digital engagement, but we've resumed the in-person engagement. And so it's there's a double whammy to this mm -hmm. skeleton staff that we have. So the best alumni leaders are asking the same questions that you're asking us here today. What do you stop doing? How do you identify challenges? You know, what's the what's the culture like? That kind of thing. So um, I think the best alumni shops right now are um, paying attention to their staff's mental and emotional health, um, thinking about the same with the alumni. Um, what a lot of volunteers have fallen off because they're burned out just as much as this as our staff is so it's being really sensitive to what humans need um and developing programs that are not such a um high pressure high um burnout kind of thing and again thinking about what can we stop doing um is more 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 light touches more scalability right less long-term commitment is that sort of what you're getting at yeah and you know using metrics as to set goals yeah. but also not being you know like yes we have to get a hundred percent giving on all of our boards this year you know like just being really sensitive to it would be nice to get a hundred percent giving let's think about what we can do there but not as forcefully as i think we have in the past just being more gentle with people um, is I think going to get us um, further quicker than more of the hard hitting using data that we've done in the past. Nope. Let me throw in a couple of things. I, I, everything Jennifer said, I agree with um, alluded. You didn't say explicitly, but alluded to the fact that offering hybrid work scenarios for yeah. staff, a big yep. one. That's part of the happiness part. Listening yep. to staff and vol volunteers and alums using focus groups and surveys to yep. gain intel. Um, but, but Jennifer, I'm curious on this last one I had that you know, uh, I would put in the blank that Ryan gave would be integrating more closely with their fundraising colleagues mm -hmm. in the work that we do. Yeah, for sure. Um, and that looks a little bit different at every shop. I am really fortunate. I think Bill Bull was on the first part of this, but um, he's actually taught me a lot about engagement, which is kind of interesting as a development person. Yeah, that's cool. You know? He just thinks about it differently than I do. And so Can you share you know, more about that? What do you what do you yeah, mean by that? I think that's a great insight. He just the appreciation that he has for the work we do translates into how he manages his team. And he really talks to them about using some of our programs and taking us, you know, the engagement officer piece he understands that it's just as important as the fundraising piece and that without us, um, it, his job would be a lot harder. And so he's really thoughtful about the way he talks about engagement and um, 
even some of our social, you know, tailgating kind of things, he taught, he thinks about how to leverage everything we do. Um, and he thinks about the metrics um, in similar ways that I do. So, um, you know, it's, I've been really fortunate, whereas I think earlier on in my career, it was more about, um, and even a little bit when I got to Lehigh before Joe Buck, my VP and Bill were there, it was more like, I need to engage a prospect, you know, here, do something. Um, it was sort of I'm like a bender. Side, not them coming to <laughs> coming in the yeah. middle. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's always exceptions and, and extremes, but it felt more like, you know, here's the menu of things I can offer you. Now you pick. And now it's a lot more of a teamwork and just sort of an understanding that we work together. Um, you know, it takes a village to do fundraising. And I feel like we're really part of the village at Lehigh. Yeah. The integration has gone gone beyond making sure they're aware yeah. of what you're doing. And it is now towards, yeah. you know, so that they can select off the menu for the don't. And it has gone into integrated communications, right? In- yeah. yeah. It's just, it's a hard question in a way to answer because since Bill and Joe Buck got to Lehigh, it's just felt, I haven't had to think about it like I used to. It doesn't keep me awake at night. So. That's good. Great. Yeah. I feel, that feels like a really good place to to end it. Jennifer sleeps well at night <laughs> uh, and uh, is no longer uh, up at night pacing around thinking about integrating alumni into development. <laughs> As much as as much as before, which is good. Um, but last question, we always ask this one, Jennifer. Where do you find your inspiration in our work? Uh, what uh, people, individuals, uh, resources? Where where do you stay up and up and positive about what we do? Uh, I think it's. I said this in my interview at Cornell, and I'll stick to it. That I, I don't. I'm not smart enough to cure cancer, for example, but I can support institutions that are curing cancer. So I can do my part um, to change the world. And and my part is not necessarily in a lab or in a classroom or, you know, putting my names on on buildings, but I can facilitate people who can make those big differences. Um, And I use the talents that I have to facilitate that. Um, So that's and I see, of course, um, the graduates from Lehigh. So I see the student, I see the alumni out there in the world making a difference. And any way that I can plug them in, I feel like, hey, my team and I did that. Like they are engaged because we did something, and now they can give their gifts back to Lehigh in ways that make sense for them. And that's because of what we did. Uh, I also spend a lot of time on my bike. I love my bike. It's like my my planning, um about things. And it's just, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to have something I care so much about and I love so much that it gives me a place to clear my head. That that's awesome. Chris, do you, do you ride your do you ride a bike around Bethlehem too? No, if I'm on a bike, it's a Peloton. And it's a much uh, different view. <laughs> it's like it would be not like as a, hard or fast as uh, Jennifer does. I was gonna say, it feels like Bethlehem with what we know about the hills, right? It would be kind of a tough place to be a bike. I still Jennifer in a swimming race, but she got me in running. And bike, and I can tell you that. Well, Jennifer, it was great having you on Alumless. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we're a um, pleasure to, to chat with you as always. And thanks for all the, all the great work you're doing at Lehigh and for our industry. Yeah, uh, of course, sure. Chris, Chris, great to see you too. I hope you enjoy the rest of your vacation. It's coming to a close here pretty soon. Had it back to Bethlehem right in the next five minutes. So there we go. This is the, this is it. Closing up shop on Chris's uh, beach vacation. Yeah. Well, thanks for listening to everybody. We'll be back in your feed in two weeks time with Nancy Merritt. Uh, thanks for listening to Alumless. Bye-bye. <laughs>